use your fingers and touch up under your neck around your Adam's apple. Just kind of press lightly. See if you can feel your pulse. Can you feel that? Some of you might need to press around a little bit. If you don't get it immediately, you can do it while I preach. It's okay. (laughs) But you should be able to feel the pulse of your blood, your heart pumping your blood through your entire system. Blood is an amazing substance, and obviously we put a lot of emphasis on it in the medical field, in our lives. But God also places a lot of importance on blood. And he does it to point out a spiritual truth about our need for him and what he has done for us to bring us into a relationship with him. But, but why the blood? Like, why not something else? Why not some other substance? Well, let's start with the obvious that I'd like to suggest to you today, and that is that life is in the blood. Our blood carries life. It is the substance of life. We take it for granted today because of the knowledge that we've gained over the years, but it wasn't until 1628 that a physician and an anatomist named Dr. William Harvey published his work called On the Circulation of Blood. And in that book that he published, he proposed that the life is in the blood. And in that discovery of how blood circulates through our body, it was perhaps the most significant breakthrough medically in the 17th century. That knowledge was essential in helping us to understand how the human body functions and then also how to deal with disease. And when you think about it, there are some amazing exchanges that happen in our body because of this substance of blood. I'm no medical expert by any means, but I can read and and learn a little bit. So I want to share with you some things as I was reviewing about just some of the things that our blood does for us As it circulates around our entire body, it does so in approximately about 23 seconds. So at least two, possibly three times a minute, your blood, your heart is pumping your blood through your whole system just continually. And as it does that, it's carrying nutrients and nourishment to all the cells in your body. And then it's also exchanging and carrying things from those cells out. So here's some of the exchanges that happened that I just took note of. The blood exchanges and transports, number one, digested food substances from the intestines to all parts of the body. It exchanges and transports excretory products from those tissues, from those cells throughout your body to the respective excretory organs for removal. The blood exchanges and transports hormones from the glands which produce them to the parts of the body that require them. And heat is produced in body tissues, especially in the muscles in the liver, and distributes that throughout the body, thereby maintaining a uniform body temperature. Your blood is doing all of these things constantly. And then the other one that really we're well aware of, I believe, is that blood carries oxygen from our lungs into the cells in our body so that we can continue to have life. Blood does all of this constantly. It's an amazing substance. Uh, The total blood volume in a body, an adult body, is approximately five liters. That's around 10 pints of blood. Here's the thing that was amazing to me. Of this, only about one liter 
is found in the heart, arteries, and capillaries at one time. That means the blood is in your tissues. It's constantly doing all this work as it's working its way back into uh, your veins, arteries, capillaries, all that stuff. It is amazing. And here's the other thing. There is currently no substitute for human blood. Despite 70 years of research, scientists have still not been able to develop an ideal blood substitute. So though Dr. Harvey published his work in 1628, and he proposed the theory that the life is in the blood, God, in fact, has spoken this centuries and centuries before as he spoke to Moses, it's recorded in the scriptures. God spoke these words to Moses in Leviticus chapter 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Blood is a symbol of sacrifice. We know that in our culture but it's also a sign of a covenant with God. The biblical account of Genesis actually deals with this in kind of an indirect way. It doesn't come right out and say it, but it's implied. When God created Adam and Eve, the world was perfect, everything was good. He wanted Adam and Eve to understand that they had a choice to follow him or not, to obey him or not. He did not want to create puppets that would just unconsciously and be forced to worship him uh, with no choice. So in order to show us as human beings that we have a choice, he started with Adam and Eve, and he said, I've given you everything to enjoy. There's just one rule. See this tree over here? Do not eat from the fruit of that tree. Every other tree, every other plant, I've given it all to you for food. Enjoy it. I want you to enjoy relationship with me. So he was giving them a choice. And when he created them, they were naked. I believe they were naked not only physically, but it implies that they were totally open with God. God was totally open with them. He wanted this wonderful, close relationship. Well, we know the story, how Adam and Eve decided that somehow God was holding something back from them, and they chose to disobey God and do the one thing that he said not to do, and they ate of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. They already knew good because they knew God, but when they ate of that tree, they were introducing evil into their minds, into their life, and into the world, unfortunately. And God had warned them beforehand what would happen. Well, when Adam and Eve ate of that, they realized then that they were naked. And again, I think this is more than just they realized that they were physically naked because, again, God created them that way. There was, there was no shame in that. But what they were feeling now was this sense of guilt because they had disobeyed God and they realized their vulnerability before God and they became ashamed. And so they wanted to try to cover their shame in their own way. And so the only thing they could think of to cover up their nakedness physically, thinking somehow that might even help them spiritually, they began to take some leaves from plants, particularly a fig tree, and somehow they wove those leaves together and they tried to cover their bodies and make clothing for themselves so that they wouldn't feel ashamed. It didn't work. And God in his love knew this, and so God himself provided a covering for them. We see here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed, clothed them. 
God in his love did not want them to feel that sense of shame and separation. And so he himself said, you can't provide this covering for yourself. It's not by your works, by your efforts that you're going to make up for this separation that you feel and this nakedness that you feel. But I love you so much, I'm going to provide a covering for you, a clothing for you. And I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And it's interesting because he didn't use some other kind of plant or material, but he actually used animal skins, it says. And because it says coats of skin were used to clothe Adam and Eve, it implies that God made a sacrifice of one of his other creatures that he created, and therefore the blood of that creature had to be shed because he took the hide of that animal and then he made the covering for Adam and Eve. God provided the sacrifice, and this was what God was teaching Adam and Eve and us, is that we cannot make ourselves right with God. He's the one that provides the way. He provides the sacrifice and the covering. It's as if God was teaching us this necessity of a substitutionary sacrifice for our wrongdoing. And again, God was providing this sacrifice himself by what he did. Now, if we fast forward later on in history, when God created uh, a covenant with the nation of Israel, which he chose, he told Moses that Moses was to institute a sacrificial system. It was a way that God was teaching them, again, that he was making the rules of how they would come into relationship with him and the necessity of some type of a substitutionary sacrifice being made on behalf of the sins of the people that they couldn't make up for what they had done by trying to live right or do good, but instead they had to slay an innocent animal and then they had to apply that blood and that was what God said had to be done in order for them to be acceptable to him. I know in our minds it may not make sense, but again, just stay with me on this because God was teaching them something through that sacrificial system, something that he was going to do for the entire world in time to come. The central aspect of this sacrificial system was actually something one day a year that was called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means a price that's paid to, to rectify something. But we can think of it this way, in this Day of Atonement, this price that was paid also helped reconcile Israel as a nation back to God. So if you take the word atonement and you think of it this way, you could look at it almost as at one month, at one month. So this sacrifice that God was providing would make us at one with him. So on that day of atonement, it was an opportunity for everybody in the whole nation, no matter whether you were a priest or a high-serving official to the most common person, you had an opportunity to be made right with God through the sacrifice that was given on the day of atonement. So first of all, they took a bull and they slew that bull, and they applied the blood of the bull on the altar outside their tabernacle, and then later when a temple was built outside the temple, the high priest would take that blood, and then he would go into the temple. And in the temple were basically two rooms. One was called the holy place, and then there was a curtain that the priest only, he was the only one allowed to walk through that curtain into another section of the temple that was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And so that priest was to take that blood of the bull and go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, the only thing that was there was a box 
It was referred to as an ark, the ark of the covenant. And in that box were the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments representing the law of God and his agreement with Israel and how they were to live as a society. And on top of that box, over that box, was placed a lid. And so the priest would take the blood of that bull and he would sprinkle the blood of that bull on the lid that was over the ark or the box that contained the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And then he would also go out and then he, they would take two goats. One goat was sacrificed and that blood also was taken into the holy place and then through the curtain into the most holy place and the blood of that goat was sprinkled on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant or the box that contained the laws of God. And then the other goat that had been chosen the priests, the high priest and the priests would gather around and they would put their hands on the head of that goat and they would not slay it, but they would confess all of the sins of the nation of Israel, their individual sins, their sins collectively. And then that goat was carried off, led out by a person into the wilderness and basically abandoned. That goat was called the scapegoat. It's where we get the word today. You've heard people use that, that term, someone that's a scapegoat. In other words, it's someone that takes the blame for something that somebody else did. And so, unfortunately, they get blamed for it. So, they're the scapegoat. Well, this scapegoat, when, he, when it was carried out into the wilderness or led out into the wilderness, there was two things, I believe, that was being uh, illustrated there. Number one, there would be someone who would carry the sins of the people away from them so that they could know that their sins, they were now separated from their sins and they could be forgiven in, re in relationship with God. That was, I believe, one of the illustrations that God was teaching. But here's the other side of it that we often don't think about. Think about that poor goat, that scapegoat. It now forever had to wander around in the wilderness and it was separated from the nation of Israel. So there is also, I believe, some symbolism there of our sins separating us from communion with God's people and we having to continually bear the weight of that sin in, in loneliness and in the wilderness. The good news is God doesn't want us to be that way. That's why he provided a substitute. But let's take a look at this. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, it describes some of this. It says, talking about the high priest, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover. That's the lid of the box, the lid of the ark that held the Ten Commandments of God. And in front of it, in this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Didn't matter. Whatever their sins were, this act provided forgiveness and cleansing and atonement because God's the one that said, this is how it's got to be. They couldn't make up their own rules and say, well, that's silly. Why, don't we, why do we have to sacrifice a bull? Why do we have to sacrifice a goat? Why can't we just take a snake? We don't like snakes. Let's sacrifice a snake and let's offer that to God. Or let's take a lizard and let's sacrifice that to God. No, God said, this is what I want you to do if you want to be right with me and in right relationship. You need to trust me. You need to believe me. You need to have faith. Now, it's interesting because the atonement cover, you'll notice that I have on the screen there, I've got it marked, because in the Hebrew, that word is kaporeth, and it means mercy seat. 
And it's, it's used only in that way. The, the lid of the ark, the covering that was over the laws of God was the mercy seat. Isn't it interesting of all the words that could be chosen to describe it? It was called the mercy seat. And the priest was to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. It was because God was wanting to teach them he was having mercy on them. The word mercy means to plead. It means to spare. It means to have compassion. It means grace or undeserved favor. It also means to relent. So God was showing, I am relenting. I'm offering you a way to receive my mercy and grace and forgiveness because I love you and I have compassion. But it must be done through offering this sacrifice and the blood has to be applied on this mercy seat. And it's interesting also because remember the mercy seat was over top of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were placed there to remind the Israelite people just like laws are today in our land, but specifically in relationship to God, his are even more important. He was reminding them of this is how I want you to live as a society. And when you break these laws, when you don't do these laws, then you are sinning not only against me, but against one another. And therefore you need forgiveness. You need to have mercy. And so again, it was showing the superiority of God's mercy over his laws by the application of the blood. So you and I all are guilty of breaking God's laws, and we need to have that blood applied to our life. But God was teaching them back then that it wasn't the blood of those bulls or goats that was truly providing the forgiveness. That was just a way that God was pointing to the future. It was like a foreshadowing of something that he was to do. But those people under the old covenant had to act by faith and trust God by what he said. And when they did that by faith, trusting God, God honored that sacrifice and honored what they did and their sins were forgiven. But it was to point the way for something he was going to do much better in the future. We read about it in the New Testament in Romans chapter five, verses eight through 11. It says this, talking about Jesus Christ. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. You see, God is absolutely a God of love and mercy and grace, but he is also a God of justice. And he is a God of judgment. And therefore, to satisfy his justice and his judgment, he had to provide a way whereby that could be satisfied for the sins of the people. And instead of his wrath being poured out on the people he loves, he provided a payment. Therefore, his wrath would be satisfied towards sin. He could remain just as God and holy and righteous and say, yes, I've judged sin. But because of my love, I've provided a way that I can spare the people I love from that judgment. And therefore, my judgment and my justice is satisfied. I remain righteous as God, and I can also be loving and merciful and gracious. God is amazing in all of his ways. This is what the scriptures describe for us from Old Testament to New. And it's why you read in the New Testament a lot of legal terms and terminology because God, through the apostles, was helping us to understand this thing about him because he wants us to, as best we can, understand his great love and how he works. So let me read it again. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more then, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Christ died, but he rose again, showing that he had conquered death, that he absolutely loves us. He's provided a way to be in right relationship with God, but it's only through Christ. And we can have confidence if we put our faith in Christ that that we are spared from God's judgment and wrath. We've now uh, been born into his kingdom. We've been adopted as children into his family. Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's another writing in the New Testament. It's the book of Hebrews. And I don't have the entire thing on the screen for you, but listen as I read, and I do have the last portion of it on the screen. But it's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. And it explains this now from a New Testament perspective, the things that I've been telling you today in this message, the principles behind this. So Hebrews 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year uh, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year can they make perfect those who draw near to worship. So the writer of Hebrews is explaining God never intended those Old Testament sacrifices to be the permanent fix to take away your sin. It was a way that God was teaching what he was going to do as the one-time fix for your sins. Verse 2 Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Jesus, when he came, he said, I am the one who has been written about by the prophets. I'm the one who has been testified about in the scriptures, the Messiah who would come to give his life for the world, to be the one all-time great sacrifice. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to give my life for you. And I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. But I'm going to rise again on the third day. Put your hope in me. Put your faith in me. And this is what this scripture is talking about. Isaiah was one of those prophets that said that this Messiah whom God would choose would come and he would bear our sins. In Isaiah 53, you can read about it. It was a prophecy about Christ. There were many others that prophesied what Messiah would do. The writer of Hebrews goes on, and uh, let's pick it up at verse 8. First, he said, this now is giving a description of what Jesus said. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, this is Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. So here we're seeing that Christ came to fulfill all of those Old Testament laws, all those Old Testament requires, and to fulfill the Old Testament sacrificial system by his perfect life and him obeying God uh, to the very end and being willing to give his life for us. 
Jesus was fulfilling all of the old covenant, the Old Testament law, and he was now establishing a new covenant between God and man through himself, through his life, death, and resurrection, and through this amazing substance that there is no substitute for his blood, his life blood, because the life is in the blood. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You must come to God through Christ if you want to be reconciled with him. This is what the scripture teaches. There is no other way. You say, but Mark, what about all the other world religions? That is like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. It is man's way. It is our way that we try to make up. It is the ways that... Uh, Satan and his demonic spirits have tried to deceive people to say, no, don't listen to God, don't listen to Jehovah, don't listen to Jesus. It's not him. There's another way. There's plenty of ways to get to God. You don't need Jesus. Doesn't that sound like someone who would want to keep you from finding the truth? But Jesus says, no, there is one way. And it's for everyone. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your culture, your generation, your age, none of that because you are all welcome in me. I receive you all. But I am the only way. And therefore, you need to make up your mind, just like Adam and Eve did, just like everybody since that time has had to do, are you going to trust God in his way or are you going to continue on your own way? You make the choice. God's not going to force you. Just like he did with Adam and Eve and he's done with everyone, he allows you to make a choice. But he pleads with you and he says, what else do I need to do to help you see the truth of how much I love you and what I've done for you? I've sacrificed myself on the cross for you. If you reject that, there's nothing else left. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Come to Christ. He will make you holy. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is what I'm saying. There's no longer need for us to offer the blood of bulls and goats because those were, were in no way equal to the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the most powerful life-giving force there ever has been. And it's through the blood of Christ that we are made right and we're given eternal life and we can be assured of the forgiveness of our sins and we are made holy and right with God through the blood of Christ. And if you reject this, this is the warning today, church and people. If you reject this sacrifice, there is no sacrifice left. There's nothing less because he's given it all. And if, how can you neglect so great a salvation? Now we come to verse 19 that you see on the screen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. Here's again this, this symbolism and this reference back to the temple and how it relates spiritually to our relationship to God. Now through the blood of Christ, it's not just the high priest that can enter into the Holy of Holies and have a relationship with God, but it's through the blood of Christ that we can all enter into the Holy of Holies. We can be in an intimate, close, acceptable relationship with God through the blood of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, talking about Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, not playing games, not faking it, be sincere. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, these are all references back to that sacrificial system that God was using to teach us of what he was going to do for us through Christ. There is no greater sacrifice than that someone would sacrifice their own life so that someone else might live for the good of others. That's the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus recorded these words, or his words are recorded here that he spoke in John 15, 3, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, we see those sacrifices in war. We see those sacrifices sometimes in crisis situations where somebody in a split moment needs to make a decision and they'll be willing to give up their life so that somebody else might be spared. But Jesus demonstrates this sacrifice for us and he did it thoughtfully, he did it intentionally, he did it purposefully, He did it willingly. There is some twisted teaching that is circulating today through some churches and through some movements that try to accuse God of somehow being this cosmic child abuser and how awful God is because what kind of God would sacrifice his son? What kind of God would make his son go through all of that torture and agony so that people could be forgiven. Oh, I think you, you people that have believed what the Bible says about that, uh, you've got it all wrong. Well, I want to say that's a lie from the devil because Satan will try to twist the truth. God is not a cosmic child abuser. God loves us. That thinking comes from a twisted view of who God is and who Jesus is. Because Jesus said time and time again, I and the Father are one. The reason that he's referred to as the Son of God Jesus did not come into existence after God. The scripture tells us in John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a little bit later, a few verses down, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of us, the only begotten of the Father. The reason he's referred to as the Son of God is because in that moment, when God in his triune nature, it's like a part of him, the, the person of the second triune nature of God came into the world that he created and took on flesh and blood. He was born. He was born into the world through Mary, a virgin. There was not a man involved in her being pregnant. It was a miracle of God. Her egg produced a, a child, and it was God as the father. And when Jesus was born into the world, so in that moment, then yes, he was the son of God because he had God as his father and Mary as his mother, but Jesus did not begin existing in that moment. He has existed from all eternity with God, and he is one and the same with God. Therefore, God is not a cosmic child abuser. God himself gave his life for us. It's God who gave his life for us, 
Now, to top it off, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm not being forced to do this. I'm doing this of my own free will because of how much I love you. Here it is in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. These are the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now look at this. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not in this sheep pen. I must bring them also. What was Jesus talking about? Who were the other sheep? Well, he was talking about you and I. Because he was speaking to the nation of Israel. Remember, he came to fulfill all of the Old Testament law and to fulfill the prophecy of Messiah for Israel. But he came to do more than that. He came to not only be the savior of Israel, the sheep in that sheep pen, but he said, I've got other sheep that are outside of Israel. And that's you and I and all the Gentiles and everybody who is not a Jewish person. Jesus said, I've come for the people of the world. I have other sheep um, that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. There he was talking about the resurrection. Now look at what he says in verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So if you come across any kind of teaching that somehow says that God was abusive to Christ and and all of that stuff, just do not listen to it because Jesus said, no one is forcing me to do this. Yes, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and he said, if it's possible, God, let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus still willingly did it he was just making sure, is there, there's, uh, there, you sure there's no other way? And he knew, no, there's no other way. And so he willingly laid his life down for you and I. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again, Jesus said. This command I received from my Father. That sounds to me like a loving God. It sounds like a God who makes a choice for us. He allows us to make a choice for him. He has made a choice for you and I. You see, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for you and I. And that is also why Jesus, at that Passover meal, when they were celebrating the deliverance of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and to be in, taken into the promised land, he took that, the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he took the cup that held the fruit of the vine, the wine in it, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. You see, when God taught Moses and the Israelite people his commands under the Old Testament law, he made it clear, Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And Hebrews 9, 22 in the New Testament says this, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why blood? Why not some other substance? Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, they couldn't see the oxygen that he was breathing in and out. They couldn't see that. They couldn't see the organs inside of him that was dying. But you know what they could see? Drop by drop, stream by stream, going down his chest and his back, 
and down his legs and dripping off his toes and from his arms and his wrists and from the crown of thorns that was placed upon his skull. Blood was pouring down his face. The life of Jesus, life is in the blood. And they literally saw the life of Jesus gradually pouring out of him. It was an unforgettable sight. And it should be an unforgettable sight indelled in our minds because that's how much he loves us. That's why I believe it was the blood. The life is in the blood. And he wanted us to see how much he was pouring out for us. And again, the good news is on that third day, he conquered death and he rose again. It's by his blood that we're set free. I believe when Jesus hung on the cross, I know it was a Roman form of of crucifixion and I know that they stretched all of the uh, criminals' arms out and fastened them to the cross. It was so that their muscles would be stretched, their diaphragm would be brought up. It was hard for them to breathe. Often people suffocated on the cross. That's how they died because they couldn't catch their breath. They would bleed out. There would be other things. But the point is this. I know that was a way that was common, but I believe God chose that way because he was showing that his arms are extended for you and I. He was giving us an invitation to say, come to me. This is how much I love you. It's as if he was giving us an eternal embrace, an eternal hug. And he's saying, receive my hug, receive my love. If you reject it, then there's nothing left that I have to offer. You're on your own. The scriptures reminds us of this. In Romans 3.23, the apostle Paul says that all of us have felt this disconnect from God. All of us in some way have become disconnected from God, like Adam and Eve, like all those that have come before us, because we've all made choices at times to not do what God tells us to do or to do things that God says we ought not do. And in Romans 23, it just tells us the simple truth. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But a little bit further on, the Apostle Paul also tells us the good news, and that is this. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift. It is something that we don't work for. It's something that we receive. God is offering it to us. Again, he's offered it through Christ, and Christ's arms are extended, and he says, receive this gift that I'm giving you. Apply my blood to your life, to your soul, and you can have forgiveness, and you can receive mercy. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's like I said a few moments ago before the message began, the day I received eternal life, it's not when I die. It was the day that I humbled myself before God and said, God, I am a sinner, and I need you in my life, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, and please Cover me with your blood. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That's the day that eternal life began for me. That's the day I was called out of the grave. One of these days, this old body, it it may be placed in the ground. It may be placed in the grave, but my spirit is with God. My spirit is with Christ because of what he has done for me and because of the confidence I have in the value and the power of the blood of Jesus. How about you? Christ in his humanity, his blood connected him to us. Christ's blood connected him to us. And when he sacrificed his life and his blood poured out of the cross and he died, his blood connects us to God. Ephesians 2.13 says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? 
If not, I plead with you. Receive his mercy. Ask him into your life. Ask him to forgive you. Trust the blood of Christ to set you free from the curse of death and, and your sin. We have a promise from God in Christ, and that's what we're going to celebrate here in just a moment as, as we take these elements. So I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you're with us here today, to just pray. Again, God knows your heart. It's not like you have to say some magic words. But again, you have to come to him with a sincere heart, and he knows what your heart is trying to say. So I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. And, and if you have not trusted Christ in these moments, I, I implore you, I plead with you, trust in the precious blood of Jesus shed for you and receive it into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us, your wisdom, your power, your might. You are our creator and there is no other. You alone are God and worthy to be called God and to be worshiped as God. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world that you created and took on flesh and bone and blood. And you lived your life among us and the same blood that, that we have, though yours was sinless, Lord, when, when you know what it's like to feel pain. And when your flesh was pierced, blood poured out, just like our blood is poured out when we feel pain and when our flesh is pierced. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on humanity and connecting us to you and you to us. And so I just pray right now, if there's anyone here listening to this message, whether in this room or online listening, wherever they are, God knows your heart, be sincere, and in these moments, just pray with me some type of prayer like this. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God, and I believe you died for my sins. Thank you for your precious blood that you shed for me. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my savior. I want to receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. I receive your blood applied to my soul, my spirit. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me live for you. Help me now to turn away from the things that have led me away from you and help me to turn to the things that would continue to help me to walk close with you as your spirit continues to guide me. Thank you for saving me. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.